really happy to have Lynn Hadenaeus here from Harvard.com. Probably Harvard on its own is probably a better definition than just Harvard.com. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Let's fast forward a little bit to where you're at today. And this may also take us back to your youth because right now you're working for Harvard and they specialize in retail recruitment at a large scale. We actually, I think we focus on high volume pre-employment assessment solutions across industries. But because it's high volume, one industry that hires a lot and have a lot of applicants, especially now in a lot of unemployment, it's high on unemployment rates, right? Retail, they they do have a lot of applicants and hence the high volume, right? But other industries are BPOs, contact centers. I would say that maybe the theme is more companies who have high volume, more low complexity, entry level type of jobs, a lot of customer service jobs. Jobs that in the past, traditionally, you look at maybe resumes, you try to just like screen out who are the applicants you should like move forward, try to look at a few specific skills and then hire based on that. But again, has not really been a super efficient way because of the high volume. But but yeah, so sort of right, but broader than retail, I would say. So retail might be like one major client of yours. One one vertical, yeah. Mm So many. have you ever, let me pick on that one since it's the one that most people have had some kind of contact with in the past. Have you ever worked in retail? This is a question because have you or someone in your like immediate family ever like worked in one of those kind of shelf stacking kind of jobs? Exactly. We were actually talking about this the other day. Absolutely in my family, but personally not. I have not worked as stocking the shelves, but I have worked more in hospitality and, you know, uh, working at uh, restaurants and things like that. But yeah, no, not stocking the shelves. But I mean, you know, obviously the restaurant industry and the retail industry in a way are, they're pulling in a similar kind of person, you know, a lot of young people, a lot of people that don't really have too much on their resume. I remember my first, wasn't my first job, it was like my second job was working in a supermarket. And I remember it being so boring. And I remember (laughs) obviously life, the world has changed last 20 something years since I was doing that job. But I suppose part of the attraction of working in a retail environment or even a restaurant environment is the flexibility and knowing that I don't necessarily need to have experience coming into this industry. Now, you're obviously now on the other side of that, figuring out the best way to attract the right people into these kinds of jobs. So how do you figure out what the magic formula is in order to... You don't need to give it all out, obviously, but (laughs) an organization, what do they have to do to figure out, okay, these people have got no experience, but we need to know what's going to work. Is there a pattern of traits that you could measure of the people that have been there successfully for the longest time period? How do they figure this out? So I think, yeah, no, that's a really great question. I mean, our process is what we do and what I think everyone should do who are building like an assessment or selection solution is always to get to the core of the job itself, right? So if you're talking about retail, that's really too broad. You need to categorize what type of job within retail are we talking about? If we're talking about a person who is more going to do a very repetitive task of stocking the shelves, for example, or making sure that the inventory is up to date. You need to look at, okay, what are 
the exactly day-to-day things that the person is going to do and then understand what are the sort of the characteristics that you need to have to do that well. So for some of retail type of jobs, it's less of interpersonal skills, perhaps, and more of just a body in, in a seat, right? Like you need someone who is able to physically stock the shelf. But in a reality, it's often a more multidimensional role, right? So maybe your role is to sometimes work in a cashier and sometimes support the customers and sometimes stock the shelves. So you need to then identify what are the different sort of based on the tasks that you are potentially going to do in this type of role, what do you need to be able to do this successfully? And this is something that we do in what we call job analysis within the IO psychology field, right? We try to really dissect and understand the, the job and the characteristics needed to do well. And that's, you know, using subject matter experts, people who have been in these roles or people who are managing these types of roles, people who know these roles really, really well. And then you work with them to sort of identify, okay, these are probably the key things that I would say differentiate a high performer versus a lower performer in this role. I mean, customer service jobs in general, of course, there are some sort of patience, friendliness, like some type of personality characteristics will usually help differentiate a little bit if you are going to do well in this role. Because then the next step is, of course, to talk about what is doing well in this role. I mean, if you work with customers, that can be customer satisfaction score. It can be solution, like how quickly you're solving issues for customers. But it can also be within retail sales numbers. Like, are you actually managing to convert sales when you're interacting with all these people? So basically, I would say what we always need to do is connect those characteristics or KSAOs, that's what you may call it, with like, what are the type of tests that can measure that? So what are the predictors that can predict the outcome that we want to evaluate for or predict for, which could be then customer satisfaction or being like quickly at handling your customer, things like that. So it's a very long response to sort of try not to dig in too deep into the details of the IO psychology framework, but Again, I would say, you know this, like we always need to define, define, define. What are the things that you want to measure? How are you going to measure it? And make sure that you connect those dots between are these assessments really related to a particular outcome metric on the job, right? What you're trying to predict. And that's really the way in my mind or in my world, try to more objectively evaluate applicants in these kind of jobs. So that allows you to look past past experience. You don't really need past experience because what we also see again and again is that past experience, even education, is very rarely correlated to future performance for these low complexity, more entry type of jobs. It's not true for everything. But again, you need to look at the data points that you find relationship to with the outcome metric that you're trying to predict for. So I think that's the IO psychology at its core. Like do not go on available data points such as, oh, it's easy to do an interview. So that's my data collection point. But rather look at what are the actual things that correlate to whatever I want to predict, which is usually some sort of KPI or performance metric. I want to bring you back to the application pool for a second. 
there must be a temptation for organizations that have that amount of people applying. As you said before about it's so many people applying, you know, they don't have to be super concerned about number of applicants. But yeah. isn't there a risk of cut scores being used, even though they're really not relevant for the job? Like I've got a thousand applicants for this position. You know, I have a bachelor's yeah. degree. Maybe I'll just rule out anyone without a bachelor's degree because yeah. I've, got, I've already got a hundred of those that I can go through. We see that a lot. And I think to your point, like level of education, years of education, years of experience, like all of those things that are easily accessible to create cutoffs based on are very common, right? And that is because it's easy to do yourself. You collect that data through an initial application form, and then you can just screen for that to make sure that I want the person who have the most experience and I want the person with the highest education. First of all, maybe you do not want the person with the highest education for all type of jobs. We all know that people who are overeducated, overskilled for something, they tend to leave early. So they are also not the right match. But the most important point here is that if you would connect, if you would look at your current population and if you would divide your current employee base into high performers and low performers, and if you would look at their experience and their level of education. What we find for our clients is very, very low correlation between higher education and higher performance or past experience and future performance. So what you need to do is if you are implementing cutoffs, you need to find data support for that. Otherwise, it's just a way, it's basically similar to taking a big pile of resumes and just cutting it in half and say, oh, I just filtered out half of it. It's like mm-hmm. random, you know? So let me ask you and about you that. You can do yeah. it, but you shouldn't. Let me, let me ask you a question about that. So you said, if I got you correctly, you said there wasn't yeah. really a correlation between educational level and performance in some of these jobs. But yeah. what about on the lower end of that? Is there any correlation between lower educational performance and higher performance in the job, that would be like a negative correlation. So the thing that you can see definitely is, I mean, education in general, it's basically a way to, you're proving that you can learn new things. You're proving that you can stick to something. Like it's definitely usually a little bit correlated to ambition that you are and you're living up to expectations. You are being able to put in commitments and stick to them. Like there are definitely things that could be connected there. But at a high level, people without certain level of education could also be high performers based on the fact that they have connective ability that are high enough. They have the right personality characteristics, other variables that could be more predictive. So my point is that on a high level probability Wise, no, it's not as related and hence it shouldn't be used. But I'm not saying that for all type of roles, right? I'm saying that it's something that we see for a lot of our clients. But if we don't see it, like if we actually do find some relationship to, for example, a certain level of education, and if they don't have that level, we do see that it's actually more related to lower performance, then we would Mm -hmm. include that in sort of the algorithm, if you will, or the way we are screening applicants and matching them. So I think what I'm always trying to push is like, check for it in your specific organization. We are all a little bit different in many, many ways. So that's just my recommendation to not take anything for granted. And I do think that's what a lot of companies are doing. They're just 
stretching or reaching for the low hanging fruit of available data points that they can easily make cutoff decisions based on instead of just making a very brief, easy analysis through job analysis and then yeah. some sort of validation study and make more data-driven decisions. So let's say there's an HR person who is listening to this. And right now, I don't even know how they had time to listen to this because they're so swamped. <laughs> they're so overwhelmed and so swamped yeah. by the amount of candidates they have to deal with. They don't have digitized system as you do. Maybe there are a couple of technology steps below. What's your advice to those people? Oh my God, reach out to Harvard. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I would say it's almost similar to when you work in whatever role, whatever, and then you feel like I have too much to do myself. So I should hire someone next to me as, as help, right? And you get the headcount, you're like, you're ready to hire. You don't have time to put out the job ad. You don't have time to onboard someone, right? So it's that paradox of you need to invest a little bit more time during a short amount of period to then free up time going forward. And I think that's similar here. You need to sort of push the brake a little bit, maybe talk to leadership and talk about these are the things that I see. I feel like we need to take a break. I'm not going to be able to meet my metrics for the next month or two, but we need to prioritize. We need to find some sort of solution that can help us track these things and make it a little bit more efficient. So it is going to cost you a little bit, but I would say if you have a plan for, if you would come to the business with a plan of saving money and being more efficient, I have a really hard time believing that anyone would think that that would be a stupid idea. But yeah, of course, you will have to put the brake a little bit on your day-to-day -day business right now. So lift your head, look a little bit further down the horizon and understand how that will save you time and money in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are probably people out there that are expanding their recruitment personnel. And those are the people you're referring to really, right? The people that are like, well, yeah. rather than bring in two other recruiters, maybe have a think about the way you're recruiting. Can we recruit in a smarter way? Yeah. And then perhaps as they continue to grow, it's, it's more scalable as well yeah. in many ways. And one thing I do want to just quickly point out is that one thing that we often hear, especially launching Harvard, a solution like Harvard in an organization, is that recruiters are crucial. They are the experts. Like, how could data sort of take the job of recruiters? And that's not the point, right? The point is to free up time so that recruiters can do what they are really, really good at. And that's basically doing structured interviews, like meeting the applicants at that end of the funnel, end of the recruitment funnel, and really directing their expertise in the right sort of area instead of putting them under a pile of resumes, trying to like dig through all these applicants where they're not really using their expertise. They're just quickly like screening and they have too much to do to even focus and creating or conducting these really good like structured interviews or whatever processes they have in the recruitment journey. But yeah, I think that's just important to note because sometimes that can be scary as a recruiter or talent acquisition person that you feel like, oh, should data come in and like do my job? That's not at all the point here. Right. It's just helping you to actually do what your expertise should be focused on. Yeah, I love that. And I think there are people out there, I'm sure, that either don't have the buy-in from leadership or they haven't been given the resources to even extend their recruitment team and they're drowning in whatever they're drowning in. I think there's a lot of people within HR that don't fully understand 
what organizational psychologists and practitioners yeah. are trying to do. And it's not to automate away their employment. It's to make no. their life easier and more effective and efficient. And make them smarter, right? Because then they are freeing up time so that they can actually be their best self and really like take a step back, look at like the analytics of what's coming out of these data systems, right? They can see the funnel, they can analyze things, they can even predict what will happen this June based on what happened last June, based on having everything digitized and trackable. So I do think that's, yeah, super, super exciting being a recruiter. And going from a manual process to be able to be more data-driven and equip yourself to basically do more. Lynn, I want to change direction slightly and ask you about what really appealed you to going into the selection and I guess assessment side of organizational psychology or business psychology since most of the places you're at are businesses. And by the way, I actually also want your opinion on what our industry should be called, because I feel like that's a hot topic that I'm going to ask everybody that comes on this podcast, but I you love can answer it <laughs> Other people said about that. That's a... <laughs> well, I think work and occupational psychology is the European title. PSYOP did a survey, I think about 10 years ago, looking at what we should be called. And the consensus was IO psychology. And my personal bias is, I think really it depends if you're serving a business or not, but my personal bias is business psychology and perhaps a different name for maybe organizational psychology and business psychology. It really depends on who you're serving, in my opinion. Yeah. So if you're talking to people in the business community, I think maybe business psychology. If I'm talking to people not in the business community, then perhaps organizational, but I don't want to bias it's your It's so point. hard because no, no, no definitely. <laughs> but it's also sort of goes hand in hand with your question, right? Why did I choose assessment and selection? It's almost like it's a little bit too broad in general, what we are calling us, whatever that is, if it's business psychology or occupational psychologist or whatever it is, because you can do so many different things within that field. But yeah, I have to think about it a little bit. What kind of name would be most appropriate? But for me, I don't know if you remember this, but I think I told you early on as a graduate student, I was like, I know that I'm not going into assessments. Selection, no, (laughs) that's not my thing. So that was just, I don't know. I had like a clear understanding going into it that that was not something I wanted to do. I was more into coaching, development, things like that. And in all honesty, that's something that I'm still very passionate about. And I would love to, you know, my future older self sit there with a lot of experience and be very wise and advise people in terms of how they can run their career and be better people on an individual level. But I do think what sort of took me back to the assessment part of it and now specifically high volume is I'm very interested still in like the data part of it. And I'm interested in that connection between traditional way of doing things and new way of doing things. And I think that's more change management. Like I think it's super interesting to see that I get the opportunity to work with organizations and help them transition from something to something new and be that person who can hopefully provide some clarity in terms of how they can think about this on their day to day, not being too technical, but trying to like help them apply it in the new world. So I'm not sure. I do think it's a combination between just random career path choices, like opportunities that 
came to me. And then I got introduced into the field and got deeper and deeper and deeper. But as well as me personally, who I am, that I am interested in data, but not necessarily sitting and crunching the data, but trying to apply the data and try to hopefully explain to people who are not working with this type of data, how they can do that in a more simple way. So it sort of felt very natural to me as I grew closer or as I went deeper into this assessment and selection process, I found my space, but I also feel like I'm not done. I will hopefully go into other areas of IO psychology, if you will, or business psychology or behavioral, like, what can it be? I, now I'm stuck on like, whatever we should call this. <laughs> Maybe we should do another psyop survey. Yeah. yeah. But I want to pick up on something you were saying about our initial conversations and how assessments were like the last place perhaps that you were interested in going yeah. into. I think like the survey world or the assessment world, whatever you want to call it, the data, the mm -hmm. attitudinal data, right? We're not necessarily collecting behavioral data, although that would be nice to collect in any recruiting, I guess. Yeah. But I think it's not a sexy topic for people when they're looking at a program. It's typically the last class that people want to take. It's psychometrics and, and I suppose before that research methods or research design and statistics. All of those subjects are essentially intertwined into what the foundations of what you collect is are built on, yeah. right? And yet it's obviously an important part of many of our roles because we're in the data capturing business. We're trying to get data from our employees. We're trying to get data, in your case, job candidates. Yeah. So it's like it's an integral part of business psychology, but people are either afraid of it initially or it sounds boring. It sounds dull. I'm yeah. not interested in it. But the thing that I think is exciting about it, like I was never really into assessments when I first got started as well. But the thing is, it's about predicting success. And yeah. well, for me anyway, it's like the ability to predict success then would shape what I do at the very beginning of the process of hiring someone. And so mm -hmm. if I have the understanding of how to collect good data, and if I build a test that really measures what we're trying to measure, and we know statistically what we're measuring is more likely to predict success for that individual and the company, that's to me the exciting part of it. Yeah. No, I think you put that very well. I totally agree with you. I don't know why that was so hard at a graduate level to understand, but I do remember like looking at that course, like it just looked so dull. And so like the metrics, like, you know, everything was in my world, it was very technical, right? And then I started, this was before I even started taking any of those courses. But once I did, it's actually shifted a little bit for me at that point already. Because I realized, to your point, the, the power of connecting all the dots and like how much you could foresee things. Like it just felt like I could do so much in not only selection and recruitment, but also in terms of individual development and assessing behaviors. That's another thing that I'm super intrigued about. And I think 360s and things like that, like it's super, super exciting. But I also think that it's not too far away from assessment at a selection level. You know, it's just different timings in the full employee cycle. Where do you think this field is going over the next 10 years? Like you're obviously at the cutting edge of some, I would imagine if you're dealing with large scale employment, you're at the cutting edge of the technology at this level in terms of recruitment. Okay. Where is it going? What would you say? And does AI fit in anywhere to that? Maybe it's not relevant as much, but it's a hot topic, obviously. Where do you see the next kind of 10 years going within the selection space? 
I think one thing that we have seen, if we just think about the traditional assessment space for a second, that's basically you have different type of tests. You're putting applicants through these tests. You're collecting the data. You're reviewing it. And you're trying to make some sort of decision based on all these different data points, right? And then we take that into a more digital experience, digital reality, where you can make that process, that same process, a little bit more smooth, right? You have one assessment flow for applicants. You have one output for uh, recruiters, like what we do, provide our clients with one matching score. And then they can actually see the data points underneath if needed, but really like one easy score to help them like move applicants forward. All of that is available today. So I think naturally the next step is more to try to only measure the things that you need to measure. So for example, a personality test, instead of measuring like the whole personality five factor holistically, maybe you know, like these are the factors that I see correlate to success. So let's just take part of this questionnaire and let's combine that with a little bit of cognitive ability, more build it together, more adaptive and more one sort of simulated experience where we only measure what we are going to use, right? Because I still think that we are a little bit in those structured standardized tests and they need to be and look like they have in the past. And you can use multiple and you can put it in a digital format. But I do think we still have a little bit more to do in terms of fine tuning there and making it more efficient for the applicant as well and only measure key aspects of it. With that digital possibility now, you can also think about ways to, before we talk about gamification, sure, but I would like to like more apply it into the world of more face valid. What will I be doing on the job? Give me that realistic job preview, but also while you assess key aspects needed for success on the job. So continue on this journey of using digital methods to make it more precise and adaptive for the applicants. I'd like to switch gears a little bit here. There's probably some psychology people listening or people that are interested in psychology. And I'm not really going too far away from your speciality here, obviously. How deep into personality do you go and do you advise organizations they go in terms of their hiring process? You have to consider your reality. I think one thing when it comes to more higher volume sort of screening, I do think a big five personality test really like focusing on those main factor personalities where traits like conscientiousness show again and again fairly high correlations with general work performance. Either you're more relaxed, you sort of wait until you have a whip in your ass until you do the task that you told people you would do, or you think ahead and you're more proactive and you're always pushing your own limits. And that's sort of natural tendencies, right? So we can be more or less of these things. So I do think personality across the board is important to look at, but I don't think you should go too deep. If you want to really understand strength, opportunities, work with someone, as strength and opportunities to really continue to develop them. That's another type of personality inventory where I think, for example, Hogan is a great one where you actually can increase self-awareness with Hogan. It's a bigger sort of personality evaluation tool and you would have to work with someone who is sort of certified knowing how to talk about it. But I think it's great in terms of leadership development and really helping you understand where you could benefit from focusing on in terms of development. But from a selection perspective, I think it can sometimes be dangerous to go too deep into personality because the deeper you go, the more room for interpretation you leave in the process. 
And if you think about these recruiters and sometimes even hiring managers who are supposed to review these assessment results from these personality tests, you have a lot of bias coming in there. And I think that's a dangerous thing. So whenever you use personality in selection process, I always recommend to try to remove interpretation as much as possible and really know exactly what key things you care about based on what you see correlates to more higher performance. Yeah, what you've done really beautifully there is, you know, you really separated the selection from development. And if you're going to do development, there are all sorts of tools out there. I mean, I work at a company called Bartel and Bartel. We do. Yeah, what do you use? Yeah, well, we actually have our own leadership assessments. So we built our own leadership assessments in-house and we measure temperament. We measure personality at work. We measure personality away from work. We measure conflict management skills. We measure stress. We measure ability to manage other people. Yeah. Leadership style. So we try and get a whole picture as much as we can. But when you're dealing with selection, obviously, number one, you made a great point that we're experts in this. We're certified to review these assessments, whereas someone on the front end is not going to be able to do that. And so that will lead to all sorts of bias. But I think also it takes a long time to take these tests. One of the biggest complaints that we get is, oh, no, you know, we spent an hour doing this test. And I think obviously for highly skilled jobs, that's fine. And people are willing to do that in some cases more than an hour. We have a temperament test where it takes 15 minutes. So I think that there are pros and cons time-wise for people on a selection because you don't want people to drop off. But the question I had for you really was in relation to, you mentioned conscientiousness. And we look at conscientiousness through temperament. I don't know if you've heard of the DISC, but typically where people hear about it the most in employment. And conscientiousness, like I'm low in conscientiousness. So I have to represent here anyone who's low in conscientiousness because your point of view and being low in conscientiousness those who are listening, there are kind of two definitions of conscientiousness in the dictionary, one of which is being precise, being detail-oriented, and being sort of really into work and the things that we want out of an employee, right? So maybe that's why I was never a very good employee. But my, <laughs> my question is, isn't there a risk of us removing people that are low in conscientiousness, but they perhaps bring more imagination to a job, they perhaps bring more risk-taking and ideas to a company? Definitely. I mean, I think that's an important and valid point. I think we need to consider what it is. Personality is really our natural tendencies. You might know about yourself that you need to have clear deadlines because if you don't have that, you might maybe procrastinate or push things away. It might not be true for you, but maybe for some it's other true for me. people that might be true. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just by looking at your personality, we know how you will behave at work, right? The best predictor of future performance is looking at past performance. If you would have the possibility to do a full-blown 360 on all people who are applying for a job, that would be awesome. Having other people rate you on your current behavior, that would be great. Then we could actually see how you are behaving. But looking at personality at least gives some sort of indication, right? But I would never recommend anyone to screen only based on conscientiousness and say that, okay, let's just hire people who are high on conscientiousness. If we are including that in a sort of a matching framework, if you will, in the assessment process, it's one data point that is weighted a few percentages together with all the other things that are also weighted in this assessment. So we are all going to be very unique in the way all the combinations of our personality traits together with other things we're assessing 
that's building up unique people, right? But then together, we want that main score to sort of point in the direction of a high score being related to future high performance. For you, it might be that you are so much more open and we are also assessing for openness, right? But we also assess in conscientiousness. And for me, I'm lower in openness and higher on conscientiousness. And our final match score is actually the same. We're mm-hmm. just like weighing in different things here in the algorithm. So I think you're making a really important point. You should not mold everyone based on one small frame and everyone should be the same. Like we want diversity. We want people who are different. But there are definitely, if you are going to be lazy and just look at natural tendencies, conscientiousness is related to performance. Sure, it's great. But there are also other data points you should look at. Yeah. And I think what you've tapped into some really good stuff there relating to the culture of the company, because if you keep on hiring people that are similar to you, you may be a high conscientious person, maybe you're high in openness as well. If you say these are the things that we're looking to hire from, then before you know it, you've got a lot of people are going to probably be very similar. And yes, they have a good work ethic and they're open to change and consideration. But before you know it, you sort of generate a group of people that may be quite similar. And I work with organizations, perhaps a little bit all over the place in terms of number of people, but you know, yeah. very large organizations down to mid-size. And one of the things that I notice is that you get a group of people that are high in conscientiousness and or high in drive. You know, for those of you who are familiar with the disc, drive. And the thing is, the higher you get in the organization, the more you realize that it's dominated, not every organization, but certain organizations are dominated by these high D and the high C temperaments. And maybe because they are the most goal-oriented and they're the most detailed, so it makes logical sense that if they do their job correctly and they put in lots of hours, they're going to rise to the top. But what you end up with is, in some cases, a group of people that now start biasing against anyone who isn't high in drive. And in the end, breed a culture of kind of macho kind of executives. Yeah, it's super competitive, very hardcore. Like there are, to your point, that's not an optimal organization. So (laughs) diversity goes across, right? You want diversity when it comes to personality as well. And if you are building that type of organization, you are going to probably have some burnout. You are going to have a lot of other consequences that you wouldn't like to have, right? You need drivers, but you also need completers. You need sort of a mix a little bit, but definitely it's not a coincidence that you see that, right? I think that's super interesting that you see that those people are pushing their way up and it's not like it's something you should screen out for. Like that's great, but you also should consider how you are hiring people who are different from yourself to complement yourself, right? And make your team be the optimal mix compared to just individuals being high performers. Mm-hmm. It goes beyond that. Yeah. We say that to our clients all the time. Though. This is information for you as part of the whole person that you're looking at. Um, don't make a hiring decision based on any individual instrument. That's a dangerous thing to do in any hiring process. But at the same time, they're looking to find someone who's got that magic ingredient. And often we find that there are people that are trying to beat the tests and this is more perhaps from a promotion point of view than perhaps a selection from outside. They know the culture of their organization. There are people that say with these high drives, and some of the listeners of this podcast may not know this, but actually high drive 
meaning like high D temperament leaders, they actually represent only 7% of leaders. You know, I did a research study from our own database and we found yeah. that out of like 1800 leaders, I took a small sample, 1800 yeah. leaders, we found that only 7% were high in drivers, their first dominant letter. And actually the number of people that were only high in drive of all the different letters was less than 1%. So yeah. there are people that are trying to beat the test in order to look like they've got higher drive. Yeah. Do you see this happening in your space? Faking is a huge thing and it's always a debate. Like, okay, how are you checking for faking? A lot of assessments are also self-report, right? Especially personality tests. That's the big thing there. I'm usually also wanting to push for compared to what? Like who in a recruitment perspective? who are not trying to put forward the best self in an interview. Of course, there will always be layers of faking, but it is also based on your own true. Like we are all sometimes trying to elevate ourselves based on where we stand, but we all have different levels of where we originate from. So we're going to push it from different points and still sort of create that normal distribution. At least that's what you see on personality tests and other type of test. You still have that variance. Otherwise, it's a bad test. But you should definitely check for that to make sure that you are differentiating and having a good variance across people when you use these types of psychometric tests. So I want to ask you one other question. What drives you a bit nuts in your job? <laughs> That's a good question. I think what drives me a bit nuts in my job sometimes could be that people are sometimes misunderstanding the good we're trying to do. From an IO psychologist perspective, we are trying to, again, empower recruiters and HR to be better, right? And what can drive me nuts is a little bit when people want to stand in their comfortable space and do things as they always have done. And it can drive me nuts when you have those people who are not willing to change because in the space, we are trying to make organizations change, go from some place to a new place. And that hurts for some people. And that can sometimes take a lot of energy because you know that if you just take a little bit leap of faith, you will see the benefit, but it hurts to, to go through the process sometimes. And that can drive me nuts because you know, if you just like hold your hand and you go over to the next step, you will be able to look back and see, wow, it, it actually helped, right? We are just trying to help people. And that's sometimes, I think, data. I think, honestly, personally as well, I was afraid of data. I was not really trusting data. And so I can recognize it. I can resonate with it. But it can, on a higher scale, sometimes drive you nuts when you feel like you've seen so many times how people are looking back and they see the benefit. But mm -hmm. it hurts to go from a comfortable space into a new unknown. And that can drive me nuts. <laughs> you know, you tapped into it. I was going to ask you and you sort of went in there straight away was this whole fear of change, but also fear of data. And I was wondering, do you ever feel like the people that you're working with who are relatively new to this, or perhaps, you know, they're hesitant for that reason. Do you ever feel like they're afraid and perhaps even intimidated by your, the strength of your skill set in relation to data and, and what you're talking about? Do you ever find like human resource departments have some tension there at all? 
No, I think HR departments in general are just so good at, I mean, they work with people, right? Like they are really good at understanding the bigger picture and zoom out. But I do think what can be a little bit difficult sometimes is to translate. So we need to do a really, really good job as IO psychologists to learn the terms of the HR world. And similar, they need to learn what we are doing. It's sort of a dance together. But we also need to understand that we cannot come in and just say, we can measure everything. Let's do it. We need to do it in their world, their context. They are the experts, at least from my perspective. They are the experts in terms of HR processes. Whole, like in my world, we talk about the whole recruitment funnel. There's so many things to consider. Everything from the size of the talent pool you need to have, like the candidate experience. Like there are many, many things that are outside in reality of my main scope, which is to assess and measure people. But I need to work with them to learn their data points, if you will. What are they talking about? What are they looking at? And then explain how these two things, these worlds sort of meet together. But yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but it is interesting that we need to just know that we are coming from different worlds and we need to learn as much from that side that they need to learn from us. So it's sort of a teamwork in that sense. Yeah, I think it is up to us to sort of, to your point, to meet them where they are. Because once, you know, if we don't make the effort to really understand where they are, then there's less likelihood of them coming with us to where we want them to go, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, I've learned so much from uh, great HR leaders who are pointing out they have so many things to consider. Like if you just take a HR chief executive officer, having to consider all these different points in time of an employee cycle, it's crazy to think about how many processes that they have to manage and put in place. I have high respect for what they do. And yeah, I think it would be super cool one day to be in that position and help put all the data points together of the different type of departments that you run comes to HR. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.